This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And we're going to begin today what will be a four-part series through the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. Uh, Lord willing, we'll cover chapter 1 today and chapter 2 next week. And then at some point in the future, uh, we will cover chapters 3 and 4 probably over the summer sometime. So if you would, open your Bibles to Jonah. To Jonah. Jonah is right after Obadiah and right before Micah, if that's of any help to anyone. Uh, it's in the middle of that section of the Old Testament that we call the Minor Prophets. Incidentally, we don't call the Minor Prophets minor because they are of lesser importance, but because of their relatively short length. The major prophets, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're much longer and they're more complicated books, whereas the minor prophets like Obadiah and Micah and Jonah and Nahum and others, they're smaller books, though not always less complicated. Of all the minor prophets, my guess is that Jonah may be the most familiar to you. After all, no matter your church background, you've likely heard the story of Jonah in the belly of that great fish. In fact, it's usually the very first thing that people think of when you say you're going to preach through the book of Jonah. But we need to know from the very outset of our time together in Jonah that this book is not about a great fish. It only shows up one time in, at the end of chapter 1 uh, and in parts of chapter 2. So he's rel- the fish is relatively minor uh, in this minor prophet book. What you need to know from the very outset is this book is not about that fish. And this book is really not even about Jonah, but this book is about God. It's about God who is the creator, the God who sustains all things and works all things according to his most wise and holy providence. This book is about God the Savior, the one who arranges and accomplishes and applies redemption to his people. This book is about God, the God who extends mercy who withholds judgment from those who deserve it. And the book of Jonah is about God. God who is gracious, who gives exceedingly and abundantly more than all that we can ask or think to those who don't deserve it. The book of Jonah is a prophetic narrative. It's intended to teach us that there is someone greater, namely God Himself, who is owed our obedience and our trust, our gratitude, and our devotion. Jonah is four chapters long. Each chapter is something like a scene in an unfolding drama. And our aim in studying this book is that we might grow in that wisdom that can only come from God himself. The great reformer John Calvin wrote that our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves. Our wisdom consists of two parts, our knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And so as we approach this prophetic narrative that was written some 700 years before Jesus Christ, we are going to ask of the text two questions. What does this teach me about God? And what does this teach me about myself? Today, we're going to look at Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. And from the outset, let me just point out 
that in most of your Bibles, Jonah chapter 1 has 17 verses. The 17th verse being that verse about the great fish. Well, I must be smarter than those who compiled the Bible because I think verse 17 goes with chapter 2, and so we're going to deal with that next week. But Jonah chapter 1, we're going to look at the first 16 verses, and we're going to study Jonah chapter 1 in three sections. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we will be confronted with Jonah's rebellious sin. We'll be confronted with Jonah's rebellious sin. Secondly, in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, we will be confronted with the providence of God. We will be confronted with the providence of God. And third, in Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 through 16, we will see that God's salvation comes through God's judgment. Jonah's rebellious sin, the providence of God, and God's salvation through judgment. Well, before we get into the text this morning, let's pray and ask God to be with us as we consider His Word. Our Father in heaven, we come now to Your Holy Word. Some of us come with great sorrow that needs comforting. Others of us come with great pride that needs confrontation. And others of us still come with complacency that needs conviction. And so we pray that You would speak, O Lord. Your people are listening. Make the Word live to us, O God. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Hear God's word from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. In the first verse of this book, we are introduced to the two main characters of this unfolding drama. We're introduced to God and to Jonah. And we see from the outset the primary relationship struggle throughout the entire book. All four chapters, we see the struggle between a sovereign and his subject, a master and his servant, the creator and his creature. We see the struggle between God and his prophet. And in verse 1, God commands Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. And so here in this first verse of Jonah... And in the first verse of the Bible, we encounter a God who speaks an authoritative word. This God speaks an authoritative word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by the power of His word. And how true it is that throughout the scriptures, God's word creates and recreates. The word pronounces blessings and curses. God's word commands and calls for obedience. And here in the beginning of Jonah, God speaks and he means for Jonah to obey. You know, early in our marriage, 
uh, Lindsay and I would often tell people how many children we wanted to have. I think Lindsay wanted to have seven, one for each day of the week. Um, we're still working on that. We're at three, so I guess it's Tuesday for us, maybe Wednesday. Um, we would tell them how many, we want to have this many children. We even had names picked out for all, I think it was four of them at the time. Again, we only have three, but uh, we, we had names picked out. We, we had plans for them. We would tell people how we would want to discipline them and how we would want to educate them and so on and so forth. We were very wise in our own eyes. I had grand visions in my head of how I would be something like Captain Von Trapp from The Sound of Music. I would speak. My children would instinctively obey. There would be perfect obedience to my word, a healthy fear, a majestic awe of me and my word. You laugh because you've met my children. <laughs> and while my children are incredibly precious to me, they are not the Von Trapp children, at least yet. I confess to you this morning that even last night, it was not lost on me whenever I was getting very frustrated because they would not do what I told them to do, that I would be preaching this this morning and telling you about how they don't obey me like they should. I've been disabused of the idea, even last night, that my word has ultimate authority in my home. I am not God. But God's word is altogether different from my word. God is the Almighty. God is the maker of heaven and earth. He rules his creation by his word. And Jonah knows this. Jonah knows this. He knows God has created all things. Jonah knows he himself is created by God. He knows that God rules the world by his word because Jonah is a prophet of God. We don't know much about Jonah. We're not given much of a background story in this particular narrative. But we do see Jonah show up again in 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings 14. If you would turn with me to 2 Kings 14. It comes right after 1 Kings. That's helpful. 2 Kings chapter 14. It's on page 404 of my Bible. I have no idea what page it is on your Bible. 2 Kings 14. Verse 23, we read this. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Jonah was a prophet of God. 
He had access to that heavenly throne room of God where the Word of God would come to Jonah. And Jonah knew better than most, better than hardly anyone, that the Word of God rules and governs, directs and disposes, blesses and curses. And did you notice the the context of 2 Kings 14? That God used Jonah in 2 Kings 14, which happens before the narrative here today, God used Jonah to speak a word of blessing to the people of Israel. God used Jonah to speak a word of blessing to the people of Israel, even despite the wickedness of King Jeroboam. Jonah the prophet spoke the word of God to bless the people of God. And here, in our text this morning, Jonah receives another word from God. Except this time, Jonah's call is to speak a word of judgment against the Gentile nation. And so you might think at this point that if Jonah was willing to speak blessing to Israel, that surely he would be willing to speak judgment upon the Gentile nation. But what is Jonah's response to the word of the Lord? Well, we see it there in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah disregarded God's word. Jonah disobeyed God's command. And not just a little. It's not as if we'll get to grumbling Jonah in the chapters to come, where he does what God says, but he's grumbling in his heart, much like many of us, I'm sure, though not any of you in this room. But Jonah does this, He disobeys and disregards not just a little. It's lost on us, I think, uh, the directional kind of wordplay that's going on here in this text. Jonah is in Israel. Now, my map's going to be backwards because you're that way and I'm this way, so just roll with it. Jonah's in Israel. Jonah is called to go to Nineveh, which is about 500 miles northwest of Israel, Uh, probably modern-day Mosul, Iraq, okay, north of Baghdad, kind of that area. So Jonah's called to go to Nineveh, and instead, Jonah flees to to Tarshish, which is is, is thought to be about 2,000 miles northwest of Israel, across the Mediterranean Sea, in modern-day Spain. Now, between us, I'd rather go to Spain than Iraq myself. But Jonah has a word from the Lord to go to these people to preach judgment upon them. And instead, he goes to a vacation in the Mediterranean. Jonah doesn't just disobey God's word. He runs headlong in the opposite direction of God's command. So friend, I wonder if you are like Jonah this morning. Are you disregarding God's word? Are you disobeying God's commands? Friends, God still rules the world by His Word, even today. 700 years after Jonah, the Apostle John wrote that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that all things were made through Him, that without Him was not anything made that was made. And John goes on to tell us in John chapter 1, that that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have all seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the author of Hebrews, after that, would write to say that God has spoken to His people in ages past by the prophets. Prophets just like Jonah. But in these days, God has spoken to us by His Son. The Son who upholds the universe by the word of His power. And so, friend, God rules the world by His Word today, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the Lord Jesus sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, God also speaks to us by His Spirit through His written Word, the Bible. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God has spoken to us God has spoken to you as clearly as He has spoken to Jonah here in chapter 1. He has spoken to us in Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, through the Spirit that's at work in His church as we proclaim the Bible to you. The Bible is clear. It is plain. You can know God's Word. And He has spoken it clearly to you. And so, friend, it's my prayer. I was praying for you just this morning that you would have ears to hear and hearts to obey God's Word. And brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not be so proud to think that we may not have the spirit of Jonah too. This prophet of the Lord who stood in the presence of God, who knew God's Word, who spoke God's Word, This prophet, he ran away to Tarshish in an effort to flee the presence of the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, I wonder if you are like Jonah. It's as if the prophet here was trying to test God in Psalm 139 when the psalmist wrote, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go... Make my bed in the depths. You're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even the Mediterranean Sea, even there, O God, your hand will guide me. It's as if Jonah was testing God in this way. And brothers and sisters, let us not test the Lord. Let us pray that we would have humble hearts submitted and obedient to God's word lest we be like Jonah. Because we know that even there, wherever it is that we might try to flee, God will be there. We cannot flee from the presence of the Lord. And even more than that, beloved, God will guide you, even in your disobedience. And God does just that. He guides Jonah even in the midst of his foolish rebellion as he sets off for Tarshish. The rest of chapter 1 is pregnant with the reality that in the midst of Jonah's rebellion, God is in providential control. So let's read now God's Word, Jonah 1, 4-10. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were, were afraid, and each cried out to his God, 
And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down, was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Well, in these verses, we are taught, we're confronted with the reality that God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. We are confronted with the reality that God governs all things by His providence. What do I mean when I say providence, God's providence? Well, I I could answer that in various ways. Uh, This is my regular reminder that the church has existed uh, uh, for, for longer than however long this church has existed, and that we can look back in history at saints of old who have done the hard work of trying to discern in God's Word, God's providence, and what that means. There are many great confessions of faith throughout church history who answer that question. I want to point your attention to the London Baptist Confession of 1689 that puts it this way. It says, God the good creator, this is the definition, this is explaining providence, God the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and all things from the greatest even to the least by His most wise and holy providence to that end for which they were created according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free, immutable counsel of His own will. And He does it all to the praise of His glory, of the wisdom and power and justice and infinite goodness and mercy of God. Our own confession, the New Hampshire Confession, speaks of a special providence that watches over God's people. And so when we look at Jonah chapter 1, I think we see God's providence in particular ways. Verse 4, look with me at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. We see here that God governs His creation. Verse 4, God is hurling this great wind upon the sea. Jonah may not obey God's command, but God can make the wind do His bidding. And the wind caused the sea to rage striking fear in the sailors. And we're introduced to these mariners, these sailors who are in the boat with Jonah who are crying out to false gods. So apparently not of the Hebrew people. Gentile sailors created in God's image nonetheless, sinfully rebellious against this God. And what are they doing 
in response to this raging sea that God has brought about. They are doing what God did. They are hurling things. Except they're hurling cargo into the sea. So even the sailors who are made in God's image, even sinfully rebellious sailors, can't help but image the God in whom they are created. But where's Jonah, the religious one among us? Jonah is presumptuous. He's fast asleep. He's disregarding not just God's word, but God's providential storm. We see in verse 7 that God's providence is not only that He governs creation, we also see in verse 7 that God's providence is meticulous. It's meticulous. Verse 7 is meant to remind us of Proverbs 16.33. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God's providential care reaches even to the casting of lots. What appears to be mere chance, God's word says no. It's of the Lord. So even in Jonah's disobedience and disregard of God, God makes the lot fall on Jonah. God's providence is meticulous. Friends, just because you disregard God's word does not mean you have fled from God's providence. You may stop your ears to the Word of God, but you cannot remove yourself from the providential presence of God. And we see in verses 8 and 9 that God's providence is personal. It's personal. Look with me at verse 8. The sailors say to Jonah, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? Friends, consider that the details of your life, what people you're from, where you come from, your family, your location, your vocation, all providentially governed by God in heaven. And some of us are bitter toward God for the providence in your life. For some of us, it may be bitterness towards rather mundane things like a job circumstance or just changes that kind of come about in time. And yet for others of us, we're bitter because of a great hardship like cancer or divorce, a wayward child, great sin against us has been committed against us. And perhaps even for some, your bitterness is more radical still. You reject the body that God has given you. You reject the parents that God has given you. And your bitterness makes full manifestation by rejecting the God who made you in the first place. Others aren't bitter at all. We've grown, we've grown proud 
self-fulfilled. We have forgotten God altogether. We take the providential gifts of God while rejecting the providential giver. And for some of you, you're not bitter, you're not proud. You're just enduring great hardship. You're suffering deeply. The doctrine of the providence of God challenges our illusion that we are the master of our fate, that I am the captain of my soul. The doctrine of God's providence is clearly taught in the Bible, and that should be sufficient enough for us to accept it as true. But perhaps the key to not only affirming the doctrine of God's providence, but loving the God who works all things according to the counsel of His own will, is to know and to believe with the psalmist that God is good and that He does good. God's providence is personal. He really does uphold and direct and dispose and govern the affairs of your life. And God is working all these things together for the good of those who love him. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do you believe that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will with him graciously give us all things? Do you believe that He has given us assurance of His good providence in our lives, even when we can't see it, by giving us His own Son? Loved ones, trust the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. In verse 10, verse 10, God's providence, we see, does in fact work all things for his good purpose. What Jonah meant for evil in his proud and sinful rebellion against God, God used for his good ends. God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to that Gentile nation. And here we see that even in his rebellion, Jonah is introducing these Gentile sailors to the Lord. The God of heaven. The one who made the sea and the dry land, Jonah says. Loved ones, for some of us, we have memories of sinful past that may be as past as yesterday that we carry with deep regret. Perhaps this even keeps us from growing in grace and the knowledge of God and in further obedience to the Lord because we're weighed down by these sinful memories of the past. Brothers and sisters, can't you see that in Jonah, God redeems even our rebellion? What we may have meant for evil in the past, brothers and sisters, God can move forward. We, we can move forward in great confidence because God will use it for His good purposes and our good purpose in the future. 
Remember what God's Word says in 2 Corinthians 1. God will comfort us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we receive ourselves from God. And so, loved ones, receive this comfort today and find someone to comfort tomorrow. Your your troubles in life, whether they be providential hardships or, or sinful pasts, these troubles of life, God will redeem. And one of the ways He redeems it is that He lets us Comfort those with the comfort that we ourselves have found in Jesus Christ. And for others of us, we may simply, we just may lack the courage or the confidence to obey God. But what great encouragement we have here in this chapter, we have in knowing that God will use even our frailties and failings. Jonah is fleeing from God's presence, and God says, No, Jonah, you will preach to the Gentiles. And you're going to do it however I say. And here we are. And Jonah is asleep in the midst of God's raging storm. He's having to be woken up by these Gentile sailors who are praying to all these false gods. And Jonah, you can read Jonah's confession as a proud Jonah. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. I don't think that's what Jonah's doing. I think Jonah's saying, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the dry sea and all the land. And it's kind of hitting him. This is who I am. Even in Jonah's failings and frailties, God is accomplishing His good purpose. If God can use Jonah's proud, sinful rebellion to bring about His good purposes, then surely He can use your frailings and failings, frailties and failings to accomplish His good purpose. So be of good cheer, brothers and sisters. Tell people about Jesus. Don't be afraid. You're probably going to mess up. That's okay. God is gracious and He'll use all of your frailties and failings for His good purposes. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And so the fear of the Lord falls upon these sailors. And once this fear of God had come upon them, how is it that they respond? Look with me in chapter 1, verse 11. Then the sailors said to Him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Jonah said to the sailors, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, They called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's instructive for us that the fear that falls upon the sailors in verse 10 appears to be the fear of judgment, the fear of condemnation, the fear of wrath and death itself. These Gentile sailors fall under conviction and they ask the only reasonable question that someone could ask in that situation. What must we do to be saved? And Jonah in verse 
12 gives them the only righteous answer to such a question. A sacrifice is required. In the middle of the storm of God's judgment, Jonah confesses that the judgment is right. It's because of his disobedience this judgment had come upon them. Judgment is the end of all disobedience to God. All disobedience to God will end in judgment. Friend, because God is just, He must punish your disobedience. He must punish your rebellion and your sin. And so here in the book of Jonah, we're taught that disobedience to God results in judgment from God. And it seems to me that Jonah in verse 12 is actually confessing his sin. Which is a necessary step for forgiveness. We must confess our sin. Jonah knows as a prophet of the Lord that a sacrifice is required to atone for sin. For his sin in particular. And so in verse 12, Jonah offers up himself as that sacrifice. Now, there's going to be some debate as to whether Jonah is offering up himself in faith as a sacrifice to atone for the sins, his sins and others, or whether Jonah simply is recognizing his guilt, confessing that guilt, and saying, yes, in fact, God's judgment is right. I'll leave that for others to argue about. Regardless of that debate, the reality is that Jonah is preaching to the sailors that rebellion against the God of heaven will always be met with judgment from the God of heaven. And it's interesting to me that the sailors responded to Jonah's offer of salvation by doing what? They rowed hard. They rowed the boat even harder. And I don't want to be too hard on these sailors. I think it's clear they're under conviction. They're terrified of the judgment that has fallen upon them in the boat. They appear to be afraid of death. And yet, they know that Jonah is a prophet of God. And that this judgment has fallen upon them because Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And Jonah is offering them a way of escape from the judgment. And yet, these sailors rode harder to get back to the dry land. Friend, are you one of the sailors? I can only imagine in a room, a crowd of this size, that there must be at least one person who understands your guilt. You understand that you're guilty. You have a right fear of death and judgment. And I want you to know, friend, that your sense of guilt and your fear of death is righteous. The Bible says it's because you know in your conscience that it's appointed unto man once to die and then judgment from God Almighty. And my guess is that you have also been told at some point the way of escape. You have been given the key to life. The way of escape for guilty sinners under God's judgment that you have heard about the very Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself, who was given as a sacrifice upon the cross for sinners like you and me. And friend, like these soldiers, you, like these sailors, you continue to row harder to get to dry land. You try harder to get to safety. Friend, if you're going to be like these sailors, then let me encourage you to be like the sailors in verse 14. Verse 14, when they realized they would not make it by their own effort, and you must realize that you will not make it by your own effort, 
these sailors called out to the Lord. And they said, O Lord, let us not perish. And there in verse 14, we see the coming together of God's providence, even in the midst of Jonah's sin, all to the end of God's salvation through judgment coming from the lips of the Gentile sailors. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea. And what did the sea do? It ceased from its raging for God's wrath had been satisfied. And how is it that the sailors responded to this saving sacrifice? We see it there in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. That is, they revered the Lord. They honored the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice and a vow of devotion unto the Lord their God. Salvation came through judgment. That's what we can see in these last verses of Jonah chapter 1. And when we put it all together, we see that in God's providence, He uses even the sinfulness of Jonah to bring about the salvation of these Gentile sailors. Our brother, Mike Nations, read Mark chapter 4 for us this morning. And he read of that episode when other men were on a boat in a stormy sea. And those men also had to wake up a sleeping passenger, the Lord Jesus Himself. And the Lord Jesus, He exercised that providential control over creation when He spoke a word and the wind ceased and there was great calm. And in Mark 4.41, it says that those men in that boat with Jesus were filled with great fear. You might say they feared the Lord exceedingly and they asked one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Well, the same God who stilled the sea in Jonah chapter 1 is the same God who stilled the sea in Mark chapter 4. And He's the same God that Peter preached of in Acts chapter 2 when he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God by many works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan the predestined, providential, plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless, sinful men. God's providence, bringing about God's salvation, even using man's sinfulness to bring it through God's judgment that fell upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ obeyed every one of God's commands. He went when the Father said, go. And yet, He was thrown into the raging sea of God's wrath on the cross to calm the storm caused by the sins of God's people. And God raised Him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible. Creation does what God says. And that dead Jesus body couldn't stay dead because God said, get up. It was not possible for him to be held by death. Friend, come to Jesus Christ today by faith to be free from the stormy sea of God's judgment for your sin. And brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Hold fast to Jesus Christ today by faith through the stormy providence of your life. For He will hold you fast even until that day when we will see a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth have passed away and the stormy sea will be no more. Revelation 21.1 Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would take your word and plant it deep in our hearts and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, it would produce good fruit in our lives. God, let us be convicted today where we need convicting. Let us be comforted today where we need comforting. God, let us be confronted today where we need confrontation. And God, for your people, let us be full of faith and hope and love because the Lord Jesus has died for us, He is alive for us, and He is coming again for us. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.